uh, all the bog was actually frozen solid, which made it faster to move over once you were comfortable. So I was actually running along quite happy in my head. Uh, it was only towards the end that I was getting less happy because uh, basically I was getting really sleep deprived and I was uh, talking to myself uh, sometimes out loud. Uh, you know, probably about three personalities going on in my head having conversations. <laughs> and for some reason, I had a, I was playing uh, the Kate Bush song "Army Dreamers" to myself over and over and seeing the video. Uh, which the, I'm a big Kate Bush fan, but the odd thing is I hadn't actually listened to Army Dreamers in about 10 years, but it was sort of playing perfectly in my head for about an hour, which is bizarre. That, my friend, was Ian Keith, and this is Inspirational Runners Podcast. Hey everyone, hope all is well. My name's Robbie Marsh and I'm your host, so welcome to the podcast. As UTMB registration opens today, the 17th of December, I thought I'd release a UTMB special with our very own Ian Keith, who has, after three DNFs in a row in Chamonix, set a goal of hitting a podium in his age group in each of the UTMB races this year. And he does exactly that and more by winning the UTMB Oman race outright. He also came second in a very publicized spine race this year due to Jasmine Paris breaking Ian's course record over the cruel 268 mile winter course and I'm worryingly starting to feel drawn to the race after Ian's kit breakdown in this week's episode. Before we start I'd just like to give a quick mention that the podcast has been shortlisted for the Spirit of Running Award for the best use of the social media. Had a really good response already and I'd just like to thank everyone that has already voted. I'll place a link in the show notes on where to vote which only takes about 30 seconds and we'd be grateful if you could take the time to vote. Additional awareness will help to pass on the inspiration. Wishing everyone good luck with the draw this year, whichever race you've entered, TDS, CCC, UTMB are the main three I suppose, we have all the other ones surrounding that. It's without further delay, I give you Ian Keith, UTMB Oman winner, 2019. I've been busy this week so I haven't really got much prep done, Ian, to be honest, Like, so we're just going to roll off the cuff. Um, but I'm no problem at all. But I'm always interested anyway to try and find out all your secrets um, from a self <laughs> selfish perspective. So I'm sure I'll have plenty to talk about. Yeah. What yeah, what absolutely. I'm what I'm gonna start with is actually really want to start where we sort of left off last time, not go over old ground. But November you broke your arm on the bike, I heard. Uh no, I haven't um I haven't broken a bone in about two years now, so Things are going well. <laughs> okay. Did you, what actually, uh, what injury did you have last year? Uh, what was I coming off? I could have actually been coming off a broken arm. Now that I think about it, <laughs> yeah, it could have been because uh, I don't know um, whether I, I told you this last time, but I basically got diagnosed with osteoporosis this time last year. So uh, I was just I'm just back from my scan this week, and I've had a, a good improvement. So things are going well. So. Uh, so that's good. That, yeah. Is that to do with bone strength? Is it? Yeah, absolutely. Osteoporosis, osteoporosis is weak bones, and I had a rather severe case of it. So uh, corrective action is now has been underway for the last year. So uh, this this last year is actually me taking it relatively easy. But that's that's my definition of taking it relatively <laughs> easy. <laughs> I, I didn't do Barkley. I didn't do any multi-day races. So. Uh, I kept things relatively calm with, you know, just nothing longer than, you know, one day ish races. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll try and keep that in perspective. <laughs> yeah. 
So you had a, you did have a great year though. Uh, it started off in January, and obviously back again for the most brutalist race in Great Britain. That's the Spine Race, and it was quite an iconic race this year. Yeah, absolutely, it was uh, on on several fronts. Um, thank God I saw what was going to happen, <laughs> and I wasn't too shocked. Which was obviously Jasmine uh, Paris actually not only winning the race but smashing the record to pieces. And you know, Jasmine's someone who I've always had a huge amount of uh, admiration for. You know, her her um, her Bob Graham round time is just stunning, yeah. absolutely stunning. Even in an absolute sense, never mind, you know, from a, a huge female record sense as well. But I think she might be in the top three or four times ever. Uh, so I knew she was brilliant on the mountains, but the only question about Jasmine was uh, she had never done a multi-day race. So how how would she? Cope in multi-day, and the answer turned out to be: I've never seen anyone better than her. I've seen people equal to her, but I've never seen anyone better than her in a multi-day. So she's an absolute natural. So yeah, she blew the field away. Uh, in the men's race, turned out to be pretty interesting as well because uh, Eugenie uh, Rosso Soul, who's another past winner of the race, uh, came back this year again, and uh, he was flying this year way more speed than he's had uh, any time I've seen him any uh, previous year. So he was keeping up with Jasmine and chasing her down through most of the race. And uh, I'd actually given up on, oh, well, not quite, but almost given up on catching him. I knew there was only one shot left, which is that he might run into trouble on the, the Cheviots, the last mountain range. And I can remember going up at the beginning of the Cheviots myself and getting hit by a blizzard right at the start and thinking, I wonder how uh, how Eugenie is coping with the blizzard on the other end. And the, my premonition was kind of pretty good in from a competitive point of view because poor old Eugenie was going to pieces at the other end of the Cheviots. Uh, the sleep deprivation got to him and he actually, uh, he was hallucinating. He was in the North Pole. Apparently he rang a friend of his three times. Uh, <laughs> told him he was lost in the North Pole. So luckily he pressed the emergency button in his tracker and Mountain Rescue came up and uh, pulled him off because I think he'd laid down in the snow. Uh, so he, he wouldn't have lasted that long if he hadn't pressed the tracker because it would have been another eight or nine hours before I'd have got to him. And I was the nearest person to him on, on the mountains. So in the end, I ended up sneaking the male win, the weaker sex win, as I'm calling it, after Jasmine's performance uh, in what was actually the the second best male time ever after my own previous record and third best of all time. But of course that all got eclipsed by Jasmine's uh, amazing run, but still I would say it was a good race from my point of view. And I was very happy to, uh, to get the, uh, the, the category in for myself. You know, that, that was the classic me form of the tortoise and the hare where, you know, taking it slow and steady one out over uh, Eugenie's faster, but in the end unsustainable pace. Yeah. She, like you had a great race this year because the weather in that race can be absolutely abominable, can't it? Like in the last couple yeah. of years, it was really bad. Um, what was it like this year? Uh, mixed. Uh, they usually name the race on any given year for whatever the most prominent bad weather is. I can't actually remember what they named this year for. <laughs> but it was a bit of a mixed bad bag. It's usually, it's usually no matter what, pretty bad going over the highest parts, which uh, tends to be... Uh, uh, over the, the highest mountains outside the Lake District in England, which would go through from Dufton up over uh, their Cross Fell. And uh, there's nearly every time there's a screaming wind there. It's the only place in England which has a named wind. Um, 
and it's always treacherous and I always try and get it in daylight just to, to blast through as quickly as I possibly can and I usually have every bit of clothing on because the wind is just uh, it chills you to the bone if your clothing isn't up to the max and then on the Cheviots is the other one where I can catch you and as I said I had a blizzard right as soon as I hit the, the, the first high ridge bang you know it was uh, very very chilly uh that actually worked to a speed advantage in the end because i had a really good uh uh combined down and waterproof jacket that uh, the guys in colombia had given me and i put that on and put a, another waterproof jacket on top of it so i was actually in my own little bubble world of warmth and happiness uh <laughs> and because it was so cold all the uh all the bog was actually frozen solid which made it faster to move over once you were comfortable so i was actually running along quite happy in my head uh it was only towards the end that i was getting less happy because uh basically i was getting really sleep deprived and i was uh talking to myself uh sometimes out loud uh you know, probably about three personalities going on in my head having conversations <laughs> And for some reason, I had a, I was playing uh, the Kate Bush song "Army Dreamers" to myself over and over and seeing the video, uh, which the I'm a big Kate Bush fan. But the odd thing is, I hadn't actually listened to "Army Dreamers" in about ten years. But it was sort of playing perfectly in my head for about an hour, which is bizarre. One of the first things I did would get home when I got home was actually dig it out and play it and <laughs> sort of let loose that valve. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the weather was, uh, generally, apart from that, the weather was actually benign enough, but, uh, yeah, for that time of year in England. But, yeah, those two points are, but, are always uh, tricky. Yeah, the, the kit does become critical, though, especially racing that time of year and that distance. Like, So the spine race is 268 miles, for those that don't know that. Um, I think you've got seven days to complete it. How have you seen it grown over the last few years? Because in 2012, when it first started, there only was, I think, 15, 11 people entered the race, five finishers. Um, this year, 137 yeah. people. Is is that what you've seen sort of, is that reflective of ultra running those longer distances? Or do you think it's just... I think it is, yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, the people have become, uh, the, the race has built its own reputation as well, which you can really see it in uh, the across the board you're getting more people entering you know standards are creeping up in in a, in a notable way um they split the the challenger race is is sort of half the distance it's probably the hardest 100 uh, mile race in in the uk but it's known as the short race or the easy race <laughs> just because it's, <laughs> it's the smaller brother of the spine uh, but they split that to a different start day which allowed them to up the numbers in both and now both races uh you know, have waiting lists on them. So it, it's quite a significant uh, growth and really, really interesting to see because it's, it's, it's a challenge to undertake it and to take it on, you know, as you say, kit is big, you know, dealing with uh, winter weather in the UK is uh, no, no joke, you know, there's the possibility of things going very wrong. So it's really good to see people taking on a challenge like that, you know, yeah. but then at the same time, once you have your head screwed on, you know, it's quite possible to complete the spine by fast walking it, you wouldn't need to run the step if you were efficient enough about it. And some people do that quite, quite well, you know. Um, I think it's more, it's as much a mental challenge as a physical challenge in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. You talked about, is it Eugenio? Um, it can go wrong very, very quickly. Like, I think he pulled yeah. out, did he pull out like six kilometers from the finish line? Is that right? 
Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that is after 260, whatever, three, only about yeah. three or four miles to go. Oh, yeah, he was, I mean, it was all downhill. He was actually, he was, he pulled out basically at the start of the last downhill, from what I understand. So, uh, yeah, he, he was pretty much home and hosed. So it just shows, you know, it's, it's never over until it's over, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I loved your finish coming over the, well, you came up over the hill, which you said you hadn't done before. But one thing that sort of I paid an interest to was your kit. You just looked so yeah. happy <laughs> and so comfortable in what you were wearing um i yeah. i know I, I had done a race a few about a month ago called the rebellion the winter rebellion which was a 75 mile race through wales um it started in torrential rain at seven o'clock and it sort of stayed throughout that way and i know you give me some advice on a columbia jacket and the difference that made was huge um what was your kit just Quickly, just to go over, I'm going to ask you this at the end of every race that we're talking about, by the way, <laughs> because it is it is so much like you you need some element of comfort and the discomfort in your kit. And um, there was one guy who was racing with us who's a far superior athlete than me. Um, he'll be happy I said that. Um, but I caught him in that race, and I know the reason being was, and he knows that as well, is because of the coat that I was wearing because of the rain. It didn't let the cold yeah. go through, you know. So what was your yeah. kit that you were wearing that day? It would have been quite similar to what you were wearing in terms of the main piece, which is the uh, the jacket. So I was wearing a, a good Columbia Outdry um, rain jacket, and as you as you have discovered, in terms of waterproofness, nothing beats it. You yeah, know, yeah. it's water pretty much bounces off it. It's far better than Gore-Tex, the Outdry technology. And when you know that and you're happy with that, it makes a big psychological difference as well because you know you're wearing better than other guys. You know. You know, if the weather turns bad, it'll actually work to your advantage because you're more likely to, to you know, walk through it on less ruffled. <laughs> so that's a big thing. And I also have uh, out dry leggings, which, you know, means I've got and out dry shoes. Uh, I have uh, out dry extreme uh, boots, which have got uh, the built in gaiters. So I've basically got this waterproof system from head to toe. And you know, for something like the spine, you need a full system. You know, if you have a weakness, the weather will find it and then it'll creep in and you'll start to to feel the cold somewhere. So you need a good working system. Hence yeah. the waterproof with the gaiters, the waterproof, and that's built-in gaiters, which are better again. You know, the waterproof leggings, the waterproof outer, and then getting the layering right. So a good base layer is key. I have, uh, you know, again, Columbia, um, Omni heat base layer, which has the reflective layer. So you get an extra 30% of your own body heat that's coming back to keep you warm, which is good. And, you know, base layers are going to work a lot better as long as you keep them dry. So, again, good mid layer helps. Even a simple fleece can work extremely well as a good mid layer. One of my favorite mid layers is, is actually quite a basic fleece, but it's just very light and does what a fleece does, which is, you know, it's basically creating an air layer is your good mid layer for that uh, finish you would have probably seen me wearing uh my my really good jacket i was talking about there my blue my magic blue jacket which is actually it's a down jacket which has got an out dry outer so it has all the heated down but it does has it's not delicate but you know down you normally need to protect because it doesn't work once you get it wet but with an out dry layer built in you don't have to worry about protecting it. And then if you if you have two uh, waterproof layers, one on top of the other, so I keep my shell and then use that as a mid layer, 
and you're absolutely nothing is getting through the base layer and you're pretty you can be very confident you're going to be nice and dry and so that's that's kind of systematically how i do it yeah. for the likes of the spine of course the problem is uh you know you need a few spares because it's, it's going over four days at least but the out dry jacket i can normally wear the same one start to finish because they just don't degrade you know it keeps up with performance all the way same with the leggings uh, so i only tend to change base layers because uh, they get a bit stinky yeah. <laughs> and it's just, it's just nice to change those for when you go for sleep and you wake up and you put on a fresh one and socks obviously and uh, generally uh, shoes because uh, your feet expand as you go along so i do it uh, be probably a size bigger shoe by the end of the race than it would be at the start um so it's it that's it's a good it, breakdown. The other thing I do I use is um, uh, what you call it for leggings. I would tend to use just a simple power stretch fleece. Again, nothing too complicated there, but I find that very comfortable. A lot of that can be a personal preference again. And again, you need to to figure it out for yourself uh, what you're comfortable with. But for something like the spine, where you can be, you know, you're on on your own. You can be the only one in the mountain range and hours from rescue if things go wrong. Uh, you need you need 100% gear. You know, it's not good enough to have gear that's effective 95% of the time. That's nearly good enough or will be good enough most of the time. You need the gear that's going to be good enough all the time, you know, and that's where having the the best gear as opposed to the good enough gear. So, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd quite often say, to people, you know, to people that, you know, to get you going, buying the, the stuff from Little or Aldi is, is perfectly good and a good cheap way to get you a lot of starter gear, but you know, I wouldn't be using one of their more to produce in an actual race. You know, I might use it in training, that sort of thing. Yeah, you have you have to dress for the worst case conditions. Absolutely, and as you know yourself, then it makes a big difference when you when you are dressed for the worst case conditions and the weather turns bad. Suddenly, it's not only are you happier, but you're more competitive. So the, <laughs> that's where the, the money is irrelevant. You know, it's it's just well worth it. You know, why not? Why you know. Uh, running is a relatively cheap sport, so it, uh, compared to the likes of cycling or anything like that, so it's uh, the one place, one of, one of the few places you can spend a bit of money and can be effective is in, you know, really exposed trail running like that. Yeah, there's a race coming up in this, in February, um, Castle Ward, last one standing. Oh um, yeah. I might edit this out. I'm not sure, like, but I'm hoping that it's going to be blowing a gale and lashing from the heavens. <laughs> um, I enjoy racing at nighttime and and knowing that you've got the right kit, where the other people won't. Um, I'm going to get criticised. Yeah, for, <laughs> good head torch is the other thing. I had a I had a really good head torch because I bought a load of good head torches for um, Barclay, and you know they're a long term investment. And I was using my best head torches in the spine. You know the ones that are absolutely bomb-proof, waterproof, and have, you know, real good battery life. And again, you know, I carry a, at least one full spare head torch all the time because they're one of those items where you can't really have them fail on you in the middle of the night. And if they do, you need a, a one-for-one replacement. So yeah. they're they're fairly important to to get right as well. And the one thing I, as I say, I do watch on those is the waterproofing because you know, particularly in Ireland or the UK, it waterproof it's going to get tested yeah you didn't you didn't mention you didn't mention the name there so what type of head torch you using my my most uh my sort of my a1 head torches from a german brand called lupine they're really pricey but the quality is top notch um 
for stuff, my sort of backup head torch or the one I'll use if uh, I know the weather isn't going to be apocalyptic. I just use a, I have a lead lens or MH10, which I really like because it's, yeah. it's simple, it's light, but you know, you can get all night out of one battery, which is really good. And what about, what about the pet cells that you see everybody using? That's what I have. Will that die in the rain? Yeah. I use the pet cells as a backup to the MH10 then for uh, so a less extreme on that. The, the good thing about the pet cells is uh, particularly with things like the Arctic Pro, they put out uh, really good light, but they're uh, nice and they're lightweight as well. Yeah. And the spare batteries are very lightweight. So they're, they're good all around there, but their their waterproof rating is more shower proof. I wouldn't really trust it in a an all day deluge. Yeah. It might work, but it might not. And I, you know, I wouldn't want to be trusting that. Whereas uh, the waterproof rating on my Lupine is, is pretty bomb proof. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you could put it on the wall for a while, probably. So after all that, I don't think I'm going to see you at the start and end of the spine next year anyway. So <laughs> it doesn't, <laughs> nice to know, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, it applies across the board. Any races you're doing at night, you need to take these. Yeah, without a doubt. Even the shorter ones, you know, because. You know, even in a short race, if your head torch goes, you're you're going to lose all your speed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, October, November, just just the winter months um, in this country, you know, it makes all the difference. Like I was up the mountain yesterday, um, up a local mountain called Binion, which you know of. Oh yeah. Um, beautiful up there in the frost and the snow, and it's coming to the edge of dark. And me and a friend were up together, like, and you have to be very mindful. You know, it can, as you said there with um, Eugenio, it can go wrong very, very quickly, even in a simple mountain run. You know, if you yeah. went over, and especially it was so icy, and you have to make sure that yeah. you've got good body kit on and you've got good survival kit with you. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of, it's one of the few cases where I would be advocating for people to bring their mobile phone with them just because, you know, it's better to have it than not to have it. You know, so I always bring my mobile phone with me on my training runs. Uh, just... You know, I've never, I've only once actually needed it, uh, to, and it wasn't, it was just, just getting a sore foot, and I go, right, I should probably stop and get, get driven out of here if I can. But, you know, if you do slip and fall and break a leg, you know, it's better to have it than not to have it, you know. Yeah, so, just, just on that as yeah. well, I had to purchase a Nokia phone there, because what I found was going up the mountains at this time of year, when I, I've got an iPhone 5, I don't know if it makes a difference because yeah. it's an older phone, but as soon as I take it out in the cold, it switches off. Even oh, though, yeah. even though the battery <laughs> was cheap Apple stuff now. <laughs> yeah, as, as, um, as soon as the like the battery's like 90 percent, but as soon as I take it out and go to use it, the thing just dies, and it's because of the cold yeah. up there. Um, because I have to put it in my pocket, try and warm it up. Um, so it would not save me <laughs> if I was in that situation. So I had to, <laughs> I had to, I had to purchase a Nokia phone to try and help. So just another tip, just to be aware of some people. So UTMB anyway, um. That was a great start to the year, the spine race in January. And as you said, which I've read in one of your reports, um, you had plenty of time to think. And during those periods, um, they can be dangerous sometimes. You, all these seeds get planted. So you came up with the, I'm going to name it the project. Um, so give me a brief yeah, overview yeah. of that. Yeah, it was just an idea that, you know, having turned 50, that I should do something uh to to embrace it as opposed to hide from it so my little project was to try and get on the over 50s podium in uh, all the utmb franchise races in one year 
And uh, so this year, that was UTMB Ushuaia down in South America, UTMB Chamonix, the main event, and uh, UTMB Oman. So yeah, the next one up after the spine, or the first one up as the project was uh, UTMB Ushuaia. And uh, so yeah, when I, when I finally decided to put that in motion, the, the entry process had actually closed. But uh, I wangled in an, an entry because they happened to be sponsored by Columbia and I was able to, to use my contacts to get a Columbia entry into the race, which is great. And that's the furthest away race I've ever done. I've never been to South America before. Actually, it's not. I've, been, I've done, gone further for adventure races, but it was the furthest away running race I've ever done. Yeah, that's that's a long, long bit of traveling. Like, how far away is that? Is that uh, not Argentina, yeah. is it? Yeah, it's right at the southern tip of Argentina. It's as far south as you can go in, in Argentina. So it's in Tierra del Fuego. Um, and Ushuaia is where a lot of the, the cruise liners going to Antarctica tend to leave from there. Um, so so you, you, you didn't fancy doing the North the Antarctica Marathon then? Because that's where they go, isn't it? Uh, well, the, the Antarctica Marathon is actually on right now, I think. Are they flying out, um, Richard Donovan's crew, yeah. and they fly from Punta Arenas, which is nearby, but it's in Chile as opposed to Argentina. Okay. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, and they, 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 they've got a lovely flight across the Drake Passage, which <laughs> they can get a bit bumpy to get them onto the actual Antarctic. So luckily I didn't have to go all the way to the Antarctic, although I'd love to get there. But um, yeah, we're still in penguin country. Uh, <laughs> it's quite still. quite a different sort of climate than the, the likes of Chamonix then. Yeah, it's, it's colder and it just so happened. It was uh, March and uh, the, the race happens to coincide with the first winter storm that kind of hit there. So it, conditions got pretty interesting pretty quickly. They ended up... Uh, First of all, taking out the first big mountain pass, and they had to divert us on road around it because they're quite steep and uh, technical mountains. And they decided that they they weren't happy from a safety perspective sending us over. So the first the first big mountain got taken out of the race, which kind of was fine by me in a sense that because we had a, a road run around, I kind of switched to my 24 hour running style and just did a mental switch and then to switch back out of it again. But I think it, it helps being good at both when that kind of thing happens. It doesn't doesn't upset you at all, and you know how to deal with it. Um, but yeah, and then the the next big mountain pass, the Argentinian Argentinian army were actually out on the mountain, and they were taping. They literally taped nonstop about six or seven kilometers over the, the pass because it was completely covered in snow, and you could see no trace of the actual path. So. You had a couple of hundred soldiers out there all cheering, saying hello, but they were out there chasing the tape and making sure that we were all okay. So that, that certainly made it interesting. It, it was a very interesting race in the, in the front of the field. And first time the race had been put on as well. So it was new for the organizers okay. as well, for the runners. And no one had any, we were all equally inexperienced at the, uh, at the event itself. Everyone was a newbie, which is good because that was the playing field. Um, How many runners were in the race? The, there was about, there was about three or four races in total. I think there must have been about one or two hundred runners in my race, which was the longest one, which was about 130 to 140 k. Um, but it was a long 130, 140 k, meaning that because it was quite technical, you're running slower. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to 
believe it or not, the UTMB itself would be less technical, even though it would be one of the more technical of the the um, prestigious 100-milers, um, 160K. Uh, the likes of the UTMB Ashwire are more technical again, and particularly when you add in the winter storm, then that just, you know, bad weather like that ramps up the, the degree of technicality. It was really nice as well, some of the trails. You could see you were running on freshly cut trails where, you know, they cut yeah. back the branches and you could see there was fresh ground. And, you know, you knew you were running on, on trails that were created for this very race, which was was magnificent. And, you know, the views were, were great. At one point I was running up and uh, the great Rory Bosio was just in front of me and uh, I was looking up the mountain at the steepness of the mountain and the kind of terrain. And I was thinking to myself, this is exactly like Barclay. This is how bad this is. <laughs> you know, pretty much hands and knees, vertical kind of thing. And you would, just disappearing off into the infinite distance ahead. You, know? you wouldn't want to see Lazarus Lake stepping out from behind a tree. No, no, no. It wouldn't surprise me if he did. It was that kind of extreme. And it was definitely one for the mountain runners, you know, because of the environment you're in and being down in south america you know it's, it's wild you know you're in proper wilderness do you enjoy uh, that do you enjoy that type of adversity yes i do i do i embrace it um because i i would have been a mountaineer before i was a runner so i'm i'm comfortable enough in the mountain environments and running races by their nature are on you know less technical terrain than if you're full-on mountaineering so you know it's very rare I'd run into anything that would worry me in a, in a mountain running race uh, compared to if I was coming from a pure road running background where I'd probably be uh, be a lot more worried. It's, it's the opposite. I'm, I'm well within my, my comfort zone for that kind of thing. And I like I like being out there on my own in the wilderness, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, having a large area of mountain to yourself and just running along and taking it all in. But I don't like being too long because at the same time I like racing at the same time. So it's it's good to it's good to have people to catch or to leave behind or whatever. But uh, yeah, it turned out to be uh, quite an epic race. And the last hill, um, we were catching up with the other races because they were shorter. So by the last hill, all of the three or four races were on the last hill and it was, it was relatively crowded and it was kind of passing people from the shorter races all the time. But it was nighttime, back being nighttime again, gone, gone through a whole day and it was quite blizzardy. And, you know, you, you could see a lot of people who didn't have the right gear were suffering, you know, mm. some suffering pretty badly. But because they were on a shorter race, they were putting up with it, dealing with it. Yeah, and then there was one steep descent in particular, I remember, where I couldn't, you know, I <laughs> I went flying and sliding for about 50 meters because, you know, you were in a steep snow slope and it was too well trampled and it would just turn into a bit of a ski slope and off you went. Whee! <laughs> but I loved it. I really loved it. <laughs> and what do you what do you fuel on in, uh, in cold conditions like that? I usually have fruit juice in my uh, water bottles, uh, which I make last as long as I can and just refill with water at the aid stations. Usually pick up some Coke at the aid stations, uh, not for the water bottles, but just drink it there. Usually pick up a few bits of fruit and maybe if I'm feeling less energetic, I might try and get a little kick from a bit of chocolate or a bit of jelly or something like that, you know, jelly sweet. Uh, when I'm actually between aid stations, I don't, don't normally eat anything. I usually yeah. food as part of the menu here, and I usually have it, but I usually don't need to eat it. And that was, I think, that was the case there. I don't think I ate anything between aid stations. 
How, how did you find the aid stations in comparison to like the Chamonix, which is a well-established race? Good. Uh, in, in, they're, they're, they're slightly different, but being a UTMB franchise, I reckon they're told what to do and you know what they need to provide. So it tends to be fairly standardized these days where you'll have water, Coke, uh, hot drinks were available at most of the aid stations there, which is, you know, great when you're in snowy conditions. Um, you know, just getting a hot drink in can sometimes give you a nice bit of revival. Even holding it in your hand feels nice. Um, and yeah, you normally have chocolate, Coke. Uh, the fruit was probably better in, say, in South America than it was <laughs> in UCMB in that the, there was a, probably a bit more of the, the oranges and the apples and the bananas just tasted a bit fresher for whatever reason. So, uh, and I like my fruit, so that was good by me. So it's very similar to the Chamonix UTMB in that sense. And Oman, well, likewise, wasn't wasn't entirely dissimilar either. And very similar setup. And it's it's becoming pretty standardized these days, you know. Yeah. But the key thing again is, you know, if you're adaptable enough that you don't need to worry about it, you know, that once you get water, you, you know, you're fine. Anything else is a bonus. That's, Although. That's one one tip for the race director if she is listening um there was no jelly babies in utmb chamonix so yeah just saying yeah, just beans. saying jelly beans is my preference over jelly babies but we're getting into fine tuning there but yeah i do like those little jellies they, yeah. they give you a nice little uh, psychological kick uh, they don't really th- they just... don't really throw them out on the table sort of those type of jelly yeah, sweets they do in some places now <laughs> you're lucky <laughs> well that's, yeah, that's what it is that's slower ones out the back all the fast guys have eaten all the jelly babies and beans already that's what's <laughs> I mean, happened that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> that mean adventure race however long like an official complaint to one adventure race all the fasties are taking all the nice food please keep us up <laughs> yeah that that does happen actually or actually on on loop races you get the slower ones eating everything and then the, the guys that are going longer um have yeah. nothing left to eat um did i read somewhere that you got lost in that race or you took a wrong turn at one point I took a wrong turn at one point, but I wasn't I wasn't alone doing it. Uh, I actually met another runner coming back towards us, a Brazilian runner. Um, so it only we only lost about five minutes doing that. Uh, okay. We corrected ourselves fairly quickly. For for races like that, I will normally load the I'll bring my good phone uh, rather than I have a I have a tiny phone, which. Um, it's it looks like a small model of a phone but it's actually a functional phone which i carry as the mandatory phone because it weighs almost nothing but for something like that i'll actually bring my full smartphone i'll preload it with uh offline maps and with uh the um the race track so that i can fire it up and uh, look it up within about 20 or 30 seconds if i need to so someone else actually had their gps out when we figured out we'd gone wrong so it only took us a couple of minutes to run back down and correct ourselves when we found it, which was good. And the other good thing is because there was four or five of us doing it, it didn't actually make much difference to the competitive position of the race either. So you all feel a bit better when, you know, it's better to make a mistake in a group than all alone. Yeah, so... But yeah, no, no big mistakes. The rest of it all went off, no problem. It was pretty well marked. We just ran straight past the marking, to be honest. So what, what place, uh, not sorry, what place, sorry, what time did you finish that race in? Uh, I'm trying to remember now. It was over 24 hours, uh, or was it? No, no, it was 18 hours. I think I did, or something like that. It felt like it was over 24 hours. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and they they actually had to take out a second mountain in the end because the wind picked up so much. They had to take out right, one okay. of the big race as well. 
So it ended up uh, shortened in terms of the height gain, uh, but it certainly did not end up shortened in terms of the amount of time it took to do the race because as well as all the snow on the high ground, uh, the, the rain in the lower ground turned a lot of it into really sloppy mud. And there's a big advantage being Irish because you know, <laughs> used to dealing with bog and mud. So I was flying, relatively speaking, flying through the muddy station, muddy bits, particularly in my, you know, fully waterproof uh, gaitered running shoes. So uh, I was happy out, but uh, I could see the, the, the runners in the shorter race, it was like they were standing still in comparison, you know, trying to work out how to cross these little muddy sections. So... Uh, yeah, it was a long 18 hours, but it was a lot of hard work, and I was definitely knackered, completely knackered by the end of it, but it was a, it was a cracking race. It was worth the travel. Yeah, it, it sounds like, you know, when the Irish go away to, like, Spain or Africa or someplace to train for a hot marathon, um, those yeah. guys need to come to Ireland to train for this race. That's what it sounds yeah, like. absolutely. <laughs> it would suit it. Uh, and the most important thing, of course, is that I did actually manage to hit my podium on the, the M50s. So I came, uh, came second of the M50s, one of the best in the world was out there, and he came fourth overall in the race, although he should have been second because he took a big... He actually accidentally did one of the big mountains that was no taken. No way. Yeah, it was horrific, but he still came fourth in the race, That's despite unreal. probably adding an extra two hours. Uh, Patrick, Patrick Bullhard, French runner. And uh, so he won the M50s and I was second to him. And I was eighth overall, so I was happy with that as well to break the top 10. And uh, ended up about, uh, had a good back and forth race at Rory Bozio most of the way. And uh, just uh, sneaked in front of her from the, in the last section, built a little bit of a lead there. Nearly caught two runners in front. I was five minutes short and not just ran out of road. So... <laughs> Good race. It was raced the whole way, which was good fun. <laughs> I, be, I believe you were two hours ahead of third place, so you were... Yeah, that, I was miles that, ahead. That doesn't come into your head, though, does it? No, not at all. You have no idea when you're out there. You just know there's other runners. You just race everyone. <laughs> <laughs> you can't take any chances. And, you know, right going up the last hill, there was two people, two guys I'd passed uh, were coming back at me, so... You know, I had to race them hard up to then pulled away from them on the last big climb. But, you know, racing, racing, racing. What, what was the most part, challenging part of the race? Uh, dealing with the weather. Um, I, I actually had lightweight gloves on the whole race. And I should have put on a heavier set. Um, and just to indicate how cold it was, even with the gloves on, you, they were just not heavy enough. My fingers stopped being numb about a month later. I'm not joking. Jeez. They were numb for a month. So it was very cold out there. <laughs> but the rest of that kit was pretty similar to what you sort of described to Spine. Yeah, very similar. Very similar. Okay. So second up then, uh, Chamonix. Most probably this is yeah. going to be the biggest challenge of the three, most probably. In terms of getting onto the podium, it was most likely to be, because of course the thing that makes Chamonix uh, interesting is I guess by far the deepest field of any uh, ultra trail in the world, it's it's a de facto world championship. You know, if you win UTMB, you're you're basically number one. You've beaten the best field. So it the the elite list, you know, where where the for by itra points, elite is greater than seven hundred and fifty points, and you normally get you know you might get five or six in any given race if you're doing well. And in the UTMB, it tends to be nearly a hundred long. You know, it's just a ridiculously deep field. 
so you just know that every category is full of, you know, raw talent left, right, and center. So that was definitely take trying to get on any podium mm. at the main UTMB race is a, is a big undertaking. So I knew that would be, yeah, the hardest one. But what I also knew is that the previous year I pulled out uh, halfway through because I'd broken a rib. But if I'd kept going, I was on track to be podium at that point. So I knew I had it within my my ability to give it a good go. So yeah, just, you can do it. You go. just on that though, like the six attempts before this year, yeah. the first three you finished and the last three yeah. you DNF'd. That's right. Oh, bit of an odd record yeah <laughs> it's normally the other way around you'd expect <laughs> yeah, I, I bet you're glad to sh- shake that monkey definitely definitely yeah absolutely it was uh so what, getting, getting a bit ridiculous to say the least <laughs> yeah what happened then was it totally different individual sort of yeah, situations the, the first one was uh it was a shot at nothing because i'd done the um i'd done the terra adventure race in ireland literally the week before so I was coming off a five-day adventure race and uh, finished that race on the Sunday and flew out on the Tuesday to race the UTMB the following Friday. So I picked up a... I would have been fine, actually. I would have probably finished it, except I picked up a bit of a niggle on the last day of the adventure race. And uh, I didn't, hadn't quite got it out of the system when I hit the UTMB. So I knew I was okay on the first climb, but the first big descent, I knew that was it wasn't going to work so i just pulled out because there's no point in going through you know about another 160 kilometers and <laughs> which uh, making an injury worse so that would that would have been just pointless uh so i pulled out of that one out of a rare outbreak of common sense uh although going there was probably the opposite of uh, common <laughs> sense and, uh, Second year, uh, what happened? Oh yeah, that was uh, oh, that was definitely part of the learning experience. Where, again, that same descent, the first big descent, is a really steep first section, and uh, I think I would now, in retrospect, with more knowledge, say that what happened was I was wearing oversized shoes to allow for my feet to swell, mm. but that actually allowed my feet to move too much within the shoes on that descent, so I ended up. Uh, moving the skin on my feet and add time and more hills and basically I just tore the skin off the bottom of my feet and uh, so I was then running to compensate for the fact that I had basically two massive blisters on the, the on both feet and so I was running on my tippy toes and I was actually making really reasonably good speed to uh, come a year and halfway <laughs> but that had been and I, I'll always say it's not the primary injury that gets you, it's the secondary one, the, the compensatory injury. And what happened there was that all that time running on my tippy toes, I think changed my running stride. So to going up the next hill, I started cramping to uh, an unreal extent. And I knew I wouldn't get to the end under those conditions. So the cramping was so bad, I actually couldn't walk back down the hill forwards. So I ended up walking backwards down the hill into the field, which must have been some hilarious sight to the runners coming the other way there's so, that there's that irish yeah, guy there's that irish guy yeah, walking down backwards exactly. walking backwards <laughs> so, somebody tell him to turn so, around to walk back down the hill i'd run about a third of the way up you know oh it was terrible yeah but so, that that is know. one key point though is um feet swelling on those longer races you know it's good to have yeah. if you have a bag drop or anything to have a, another size up to allow yes, for the definitely. swelling 
Yeah, and from my adventure racing days, I actually have a pair of shoes that's two sides is too big, which very occasionally gets called out into action if things are getting too extreme. <laughs> but these days, I'm not so bad. Uh, time and experience seems to mean they swell a little less, so I can usually get away with half a size to one size. That's it. So the, the third time then, did you say you broke your collarbone? Bro broke my rib the third oh, time. Broke your rib, sorry. Coming again, it could have been that. I had about three falls, maybe four. And I uh, don't know which one broke the rib, but the first one was probably the hardest. It could have been that. Just running down near the bottom of that steep descent down a, a forest road and just tripped on a root. Um, just a silly one. And went crashing to the floor. Um, so yeah, that could well have been. I would say that one probably broke it and the next two or three falls just, you know, compounded that. Yeah, so that by the time I was beyond halfway, I knew I was slowing down and I've broken ribs before. And it's not the pain of a broken rib, but it actually constricts your breathing and then that kills your speed. And that's what had happened to me. So I ended up just, just deciding, I knew I wasn't gonna finish, but I'd walk to the aid station where I knew Helen, my wife was waiting. And uh, so I just walked to her and uh, pulled out at that point, which yeah. it's, pretty <laughs> it's pretty frustrating. I know when I done the CCC there, I went over. I actually nearly went over about two or three times, about 10 minutes before I went over. It was obviously tiredness kicking in and it was on a bit of a technical trail, but it was 90K into the race and I went over yeah. pretty bad and snapped my ankle. Um, I thought, shit, after all of that, I'm not even going to be able to finish this race. But lucky enough, I was able to get up and run it off. Um, but it can yeah, happen yeah. so easy on those courses, like especially when tiredness oh, yeah. kicks in. Absolutely. It only takes a, a second of lack of concentration, you know, particularly on a technical section, and you can be gone, you know, and that's, yeah, it's the frustration of getting yourself taken out of a race which you've, which you've spent so long preparing, <laughs> preparing for, you know, so that that's the real bad thing about it much more so than the injury itself, which, you know, you know, you're going to get over probably. Yeah. Um, so you know, but luckily, luckly then number seven, seven's a lucky number, I think, but yeah. um, seventh attempt, fourth attempt after three DNFs, um, and you managed to get your podium. Um, yeah. Only just. Yeah, only just really, as in third, as opposed to. So just last position on the podium, but got there and that was the key thing. Uh, and it was a race for it as well in terms of uh, the guy who got first only overtook me at halfway, looking back at the, the tracking. So, and I, I know that the, I checked about one quarter of the way and I was in fifth position, which meant that I must have overtaken about four people to get third overall, you know, which is, you know, quite a lot to overtake in a race like that, as I say. So. I definitely ran a good tactical race. Uh, I was working my way up the main field as well from, again, from about one third of the way in. Uh, as in my position, I would have been down in a hundred and something. And when I started paying attention to my position, uh, I was probably 78, I think. And by the end of the race, I'd run to 49th overall, which is not a bad position to be in in the UTMB. Because as I say, considering the elite field would have been about a hundred deep. Getting uh, 49 for the, I was very happy with that. Yeah, that was. I that, yeah, I overtook about uh, eight people on the last descent because I paced it so well. I basically ran through the last aid station pretty much without stopping and overtook four people doing that alone and then just absolutely bombed down the last downhill at full speed because I, <laughs> you know, I'd left myself enough in the legs that I was able to do it and just burn it all out. 
Uh, and the last guy overtook stuck with me right to the bottom of the descent. So I ended up, there's a two kilometer, two mile or two kilometer or so running run on the flat beside the river. I started that with a guy beside me. So I just had to sprint it in. I would have been so comfortable finishing if he wasn't there. But because <laughs> he was me, it was a two kilometer sprint. And I did not, I got in front of him and I didn't look back. So I wasn't aware of how close he was to me. I just sprinted that entire two kilometers to the finish line. In the end, I beat him by two or three minutes, but I didn't know that. I was I was envisioning he was right behind me and I couldn't let up. So I was absolutely knackered at the end as a result. It took me about uh, two hours to be able to walk away from the finish line properly. Yeah, I remember I was lucky enough to be there, obviously. And um, I was sitting there with my wife and two kids and we were waiting waiting for you to finish we must have just missed you crossing the finish line um yeah. but then i spotted you and he goes um there he is there and the kids go to me where i go see that guy over there is with a big smile on his face he's like a cheshire cat <laughs> i goes that's him there um there's quite a lot of an irish contingency there isn't there there is and it was great continued around and uh, the, the, it was lovely quite a few turned out to see me finish and likewise i i if i have any opportunity all oh, I'll, I'll make the effort to go to meet any irish person finishing as well uh, it's great the way everyone does that it's, it's a good uh, communal atmosphere amongst the, the irish there and uh, it's always lovely you know really nice you had a few good runs there this year for sure yeah, you had a great time though. Twenty-seven hours, seventeen minutes, and thirteen yeah, seconds. Yeah, like second time. So, uh, considering the the added age factor, I was very happy with that as a time, you know. And plus, I had one extra hill compared to my fastest time as well, because it was actually slightly extended, of course. Uh, so, yeah, I was. I, in retrospect, looking back, I can only be happy with that big time. Yeah, I, I remember going back to the hotel. Um, might have been staying in the same hotel as you, actually, La, La Folle Douce. No, I was a different one. Okay. So going back to the hotel anyway, and it was near the downhill that you were talking about. We went back late that night and you could see oh, all yeah. the, you could see all the head torches coming down. Yeah. Um, some side between the head torches, it's great. Oh, it was yeah. class. Like went to bed though, got up the next day um to watch the finishers coming in. And it was really then when it really stuck in my you know, it really hit me on how well you had done. Because you were sitting yeah. there now, you had changed, you had night's sleep, you were all nice and fresh. And these people were still coming into the finish line, you know, the next yeah. day. Yeah, and then they're working just as hard, you know. It's it's everyone's working hard in that race. Yeah, it's it's quite a it's an interesting perspective. My my wife my my favorite one for that perspective is finishing the spine where, you know, I'll usually finish the spine, recover for half a day, you know, get an overnight sleep at the, the town where the finish is. Usually one of the mountain rescue guys gives me a, gives me a bed for the night, which is very kind of him. He's from Northern Ireland as it happens, but living down there. And um, he, then I'll get the train. He dropped me to the train station. I get the train to Edinburgh, meet a friend of mine there, Janice, get the plane home, have an overnight sleep, log into the computer and watch the spine is still <laughs> out there finishing the race and it's you know it's it's amazing but that you know this these races go on for so long and people are out there making that effort long after you know us, us front runners get the get to finish you know and it's it's a, it's it's inspiring in some ways that people put in that massive extra effort and you know it's one thing i like about the the, the trail running and scene in particular is that you know from top to top to bottom everyone's uh, effort is appreciated you know 
Sorry, yeah. even in the local movement running scenes, you know, every everyone's race is equally valid, whether you're in front of the field racing first and second, or you know, you're you're racing for a hundred and first, a hundred and second. It's it's an equally valid race and it's you know everyone's putting in the same effort. It's great. Yeah, the finish line in Chamonix is really an emotionally charged place to be, isn't it? I don't think there's anything yeah. like it. Um when you see those guys oh, yeah. coming in you have 40 yeah. hours, 45 hours. It finishes at 46 hours, obviously. Um, Hold on. Personally, my emotion is actually on the start line because uh, I just find the whole start routine, uh, which they spend about an hour winding it up. And it's it's great. It's great because Owen Flynn, uh, uh, you know, Irish international mountain runner, is a great race announcer. And he's now one of the race announcers for the UTMB. So great to have an Irishman doing it and he's really really good at it too and he everyone's winding up you know and they have their UTMB theme song 1492 Van Gallis and once that starts I'll be perfectly kind of that but I love, I've always loved Van Gallis and you know now I associate that song with UTMB and it just gets me going and I can feel my eyes welling up and you know that one gets me going so when the, when it's when it reaches the crescendo and the start goes, I'm I'm ready, I'm there, I'm wound up, and I'm off. You know, whereas the finish line, I'm kind of more relaxed. Other people seem to get more um, more emotional about it. Whereas for me, this year is more relief of actually getting to stop the sprint. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a chair, class, which, <laughs> which I did. I found a chair in that line. Oh, <laughs> but j- just to give you perspective, though, like 27 hours, um, Courtney, do what. Who done absolutely amazing this year? She dominated the race. Um, she yeah, finished yeah. at twenty four hours and thirty four minutes. So you're only a couple of yeah. hours behind her, really. Like um, she was the yeah. second fastest American to finish, and only a few seconds behind. Is it Jason? I think his name is. Um, Jason Schlager. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good runner, Jason. Yeah, um, and Jason actually, I've raced in all three UTMBs. Uh, <laughs> He was in Ushuaia as well. He was he won UTMB Ushuaia, and uh, he, he was last year he won UTMB Oman as well. Um, so a good runner, and he's also over forties. He's ten years younger than me, but he's over forties. Uh, so but it just goes runner. just good goes day. to show. Um, we sort of touched on that last year as well, and how strong the female ultra running scene starting to get. We, we, yeah, we yeah. talked about Jasmine. There's Courtney. And um, we had yeah. Maggie Guterall on the podcast a few weeks ago, yeah. who'd won last one standing. Yeah, and Maggie and myself spent, uh, I spent more time at Barclay with Maggie than anyone else. We were, uh, we spent the full second lap and a good chunk of the first lap running together. So Maggie and myself uh, <laughs> know each other pretty yeah. well as a result of that. She's she a great runner. She did actually mention you in the podcast. She goes, I hope Ian Keith comes back because he's a real strong yeah. Um, a real I hope so too. Yeah. I was going to leave that to the, the end. But... She's another all-rounder. And the thing about Courtney this year is Courtney was actually off form when she won uh, UTMB. You know, she's not 100%, but it'll be interesting to come back and see what she can do when she is 100% because she wasn't 100% beforehand. She pulled out of Western States earlier in the year and she wasn't 100% at the 24-hour World Champs where she had, by her own stellar standards, uh, a suboptimal race. Now she still was third in the world. You know, she still scored for the American team and won gold. But she's just seems to have a few injuries this year. So she won UTMB at less than 100% in an excellent time. That shows you how good Courtney is. She's phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. I think she went to the Tahoe 200 
um, just after yeah. that as well. And she had a phenomenal race in that. Um, but she's able to go through the pain barrier like no other, I think. Yeah, she's she's uh, it's definitely almost a given in her case if she can do that. Yeah, yeah. and she's just naturally given. She's just great runner. There was two things stuck out in my mind that I said to you after the race when we were watching it the next day. One, one thing was, you know, I had really suffered at the end of the race, but I said, you know, I've just it was just a new level of suffering for me that I wasn't used to. But what you said to me was, yeah. I, I was like, you need to learn how to suffer properly. You were like, no, you need to learn how to avoid the suffering. Yeah, yeah. That's more and important. It's not true. There's a lot of, I, I, that's what I'm trying to do. You know, I, I'm not a fan of suffering, <laughs> you yeah. know. What I try and do is I try and factor it out, whatever, try and work out what's causing the suffering and how to get rid of it. So, you know, in my early days of ultra running, uh, my first uh, big ultra was 100k. Uh, I think it was the first time I ran for Ireland in the Animal Celtic Plate. And my quads are really sore for um, second half of the race and caused my pace to fall off. So the fix for that turn, you know, I worked out was cycling. So more cycling, and I haven't suffered those quad problems since because I've strengthened up my quads through cycling. So that's that's suffering eliminated. And of course, something else comes along to take its place. Sore feet were another thing that used to uh, plague me in 24-hour runs where you just sheer tired feet where you just have this overwhelming desire to get off your feet, stick them up in the air, and just you know stop putting your weight on them. And I don't really get that as much now because uh, I, I think that's just experience, time on feet of just mm-hmm. learning, putting in the long hours training. You, you learn, teach your feet how to deal with it. So yeah, I'm always trying to factor those things out. My, my biggest suffering of anything in, uh, in, in ultras is in the multi-days where sleep deprivation uh, it's it's well known to be one of the most effective tortures in the world. So yeah. <laughs> what I try and do is not get to the point where I'm that sleep deprived. So that, you know I time try and time my my sleeps so I never get that bad. Or if I'm starting to approach it, that I can get a power nap in to take the edge off it because a ten minute power nap will you know often sort you out the next six hours or so. So again, it's it's eliminating the suffering as opposed to digging in like a masochist and dealing with it. You know, <laughs> the more intelligent approach is trying not do the suffering. But, you know, unfortunately, you eliminate one, the next one comes along, and that's, that's 20 years of trying to solve this puzzle that you just get the next one up, you know. But having said that, I do actually suffer a lot less than I would have earlier in my career, for sure. You know, I, I do, I can be out there basically not suffering just running along cruising enjoying myself and it's much nicer way to be running a race than to you know be uh, running along <laughs> embracing suffering i far, far prefer to be running along not embracing suffering quite frankly <laughs> what, what was your most challenging part of that race the utmb yeah um, just the sheer competitiveness of it and mm. you know the, the the pressure of keeping pressure on myself from myself of keeping the pace up and getting the pace right. And in the earlier parts of the race where I know I'm losing competitiveness because I'm suffering in the altitude due to not being uh, living in the Alps and all the guys who are living in the Alps have got past because, you know, I, I'm having a bad time. It was the second hill where I actually suffered probably worse than altitude. But then over time, it kicks in. The tortoise and the, the hair effect works through, and suddenly the guys who 
have passed me are now slowly being overtaken back and I'm gaining positions rather than losing them. So it's for me, probably the most difficult part is just having the patience in the, the first one third to not go out too hard, to preserve the body and to, you know, let it rip a bit better in the second half then. So it, it, that can be difficult to do. Having said that, I was pretty tired uh, towards the end of the, the daylight on the second, on the, towards the end of the race. <laughs> and, you know, it's taken longer than I normally would at the aid station just to recover a bit. So dealing with, a, with that fatigue of being 150, 160 kilometers in was probably tricky as well. Plus there's uh, the mountain bovine, which is pretty super steep and taking on bovine, uh, which I hadn't done in a few years because I hadn't made it that far. Oh, yeah, that was suffering. <laughs> it's so steep. Yeah, I, I was just glad you didn't beat my CCC time. <laughs> that wouldn't have been good for me. <laughs> yeah, no danger. <laughs> um, so third up um, was third and final race. Um, oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, quite a relatively oh, new man. race as well. Yeah, well, last year was the first one, and that was the, it was one race only last year, 135k. And uh, I took it on last year because actually, I, the, first of all, it always looked like an interesting race to me to go out and race in. Uh, I love deserts, and this was mountains in the desert. So that's yeah. Whereabouts is it? Where is it? Where is Oman? Oman is uh, sort of the corner of the Arabian Peninsula, so okay. it's it's south of Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Um, sort of west or east of Yemen and Saudi Arabia, so it's right on that corner there near near Iran. It sounds hot. So, so yeah, it would be hot in the desert, but luckily this is the mountains. The okay. trail, and there's actually no sandy desert; it's all mountain trails. So it's actually really good terrain, and it's the kind of environment I love. That kind of rocky desert terrain, which um, and then up into the high mountains. So the temperature isn't as bad as you would think it would be. Um, mm. at night time it's actually ideal it can be 10 degrees or there thereabouts which is pretty perfect running temperature and even in the heat of the day it kind of maxes out at 25 30 in the i think we started in 27 28 degrees which is very hot but it's you can manage it you know it's not in the 30s uh and uh as you gain altitude temperature drops and a lot of that uh, race a lot of Lot of Oman this year would have been well above a thousand meters and up to up to a max of about three thousand meters. So yeah, you're getting yeah. a good bit of temperature loss. And in the in the middle of the, the second day, which is where I had to go through a full day of the race, I was at the highest point of the race. So it was a nice combination of despite being the hottest part of the day, I was at, at three thousand meters. So it was taking the edge off, basically, which helps. Yeah, it's, it's quite a lot though, isn't it, on your body? Like if you have this like the spine race in itself and then to have um, the, the previous two UTMBs. It's only about 13 weeks from Chamonix to this race. What did you yeah, do in that time to prepare? Well, that, that's, that's, that's talk about giving the wrong answer. Between Chamonix and UTMB, I did the World 24 Hour Running Championships. That's right. Uh, so that's, in a lot of ways, that's, that's even harder. Um, you won that race, didn't you? The World Championships? No, yeah. God Almighty! Uh, I was the fastest I or the best of the Irish, which I was happy enough. Yeah, that's what I the national champion. Yeah, well, that was it. Belfast was in June. That was the actual national championships. But no, I did the best distance of the Irish team, which okay. you know, 
just about. So I was I was happy to to get that in and uh, you know do something for the team. Um, it was also a great race to be at because Camille Heron, another one of the great female runners, to my mind possibly the best of them. Uh, she broke the world record and, the, you know, with an outstanding run. It was phenomenal to witness, absolutely phenomenal. You know, I was watching uh, Patricia Baranowski, who is the, had was at the time, was the previous world record holder. And uh, I was looking at her thinking, oh, poor Patricia does not having a great day. And then I realized, no, Patricia's having a very good day. <laughs> Just Camille is making all of us look so slow, including Patricia. <laughs> uh, and most of the guys as well yeah she is um, absolutely amazing she's on fire at the minute i've tried to get her on the podcast but um it's the same with anybody who does really well like that they just get absolutely hammered yeah. yeah well the good thing about camille is she's married to a sound irish man connor so uh, you, you have a reasonable shot at getting her i say okay. um so and then we actually the irish she came back to dublin after the race so the, uh, we were we had her with the Irish team in Dublin Airport. We, she and she's she's marvelous. She's she's really great to talk to, and she's really down to earth and really direct, um, which I love. I think she's great. She yeah, I, she is. I think I've seen a, a photograph with her with the Irish top on actually in the airport. Now you mentioned yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing our best to recruit her. Yeah, she'd be so acid. <laughs> Even to the men's team, she'd be the best by far. Um, so, uh, so that was an interesting race. And then I also had the Wicklow Eco Trail, which is 80k in Wicklow. Jesus. Uh, another good one in between. And uh, one other small race two weeks to go was the um, the uh, Run the Line, which Dublin Mountain Rescue put on, which is it's, uh, it's relatively short at 26k, but still, you know. No matter how easy you think it is, once you get in a race, you start racing. Yeah, the short, and, uh, the shorter makes you go a bit harder as well, which can be a little bit more fatiguing. It does, but uh, I, I was relatively controlled on that. I was using a speed work more than anything. And okay. uh, so I had, yeah, I had two, two, one big race, one medium race, and one small race in between, and then hit Oman, which for me would be the last A race of the season, and uh, the last race of the season. So um, going in, I was, I was reasonably confident that I would manage to get the, the podium for the M50s, but they actually, um, they give out the, there was three races this year, so as well as the original 135, they'd put in the 170, and me being me, I'm always going to go for the big race, so I went straight to the 170, and the 170 includes the highest mountain on the Arabian Peninsula, which made it even more interesting, and it was quite a step up in uh, in difficulty even by course description because it added about 3,000 meters of climb and descent as well. It took it over 10,000 meters of climb and descent. So even on paper, it was harder than the UTMB Chamonix. And on the ground, it's much harder because it's far more technical trails. Uh, Chamonix is actually relatively straightforward. They're well-worn walking trails, whereas the, the trails in Oman are not so well worn and they're they're much more technical. Uh, I happen to be someone who loves technical trails, so I, I think it's an amazing race. And then the extra bits which were put in for the 170k course made the 135 course look benign in comparison. So it really ramped up the technicality to the, to the max, probably the most technical running race I've ever run in terms of the ground covered. Um, you know, there's sections of it where you actually put on a harness and a helmet and do some via ferrata, um, 
there's a, there's another section near the high peak where you don't put on a harness and a helmet and a harness, but you probably should because <laughs> yeah, it's equally exposed but without protection. Do they warn uh, you? Do they warn you of that before going into the race? They do. Yeah, they may, they they tell you it's mandatory to use the safety gear on the in that section, and they do have people supervising. As it happens, I ran up and got to the section second runner and. Uh, the guy greets me and I, I heard his voice say, where are you from? I, and he said, I, I, I figured that one out. I'm from Cork. Where are you from? He said, oh, Donegal. <laughs> so a small world there. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so they do warn you, you know it's coming. But uh, the bad, runners towards the back, you know, it's good they're on protection because they'd be so tired when they hit it. It's about 70 or 80k in. That is good to be protected. You, you see at the start of the race, then you see the extra numbers that you spoke about. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. So everyone's uh, gives the the your race number is given out by your extra points in this race, which I I love because it, it kind of makes a race within a race. So they gave me number three, meaning I was the third ranked runner in that race, uh, which kind of put it on me. The game I played in is try and beat my ranking. So <laughs> straight away, that's. That's me sort of aiming to get on the main podium as third as a sort of a minimum target, uh, which really ramped up the pressure, yeah. my internal pressure on myself. If you know that that, I mean. that could work for me at the back, you know. I got a feeling yeah. it'd be like getting the number one at the Barclay. I could end up with the last <laughs> race number here. <laughs> like some yeah. poor soul is going to get that number. Oh, it's you. So it's, it's, it's interesting looking around and you're paying attention to it at the start line, seeing who's who as well, you know. But you, so it's all part of the fun and games. I yeah, love but that. you must know, you must be looking at the race um, line out anyway before the race and understand who your competition is. Yeah, I do and I would. Uh, although I had very little time to do it this year because they only put out the, um, they kept the entries open until quite late. So they didn't go up online until about three, three or four days to go. Right, okay. But I had a quick scan. I used I, the uh, DUV website to do a quick rundown at the top uh, seven or eight, see what their experience was. And, uh, you know, did we share any races? Had I raced them before? Could I cross compare times? And the, the main takeaway I had from it actually was that um, I had the best long distance experience by far. And I was the only one who would have done a multi-day race. The rest of them were would have maxed out around UTMB itself. Uh, you know, the French runners would have done UTMB, but no one had really done longer than that. And I knew from last year, having taken 25 hours to do the 135 course, that I reckon the absolute minimum anyone would do the 170 course in would be 30 hours. It would probably be longer than that. So. To me, you've gone beyond. You've gone way beyond the level of difficulty of the UTMB and the level of running endurance versus running speed that is required for that. So I knew that I probably had more knowledge of how to pace that than the runners around me, and that's that's basically in the nutshell was where my race strategy came from, which was to run my own pace and uh, be patient and see what evolved out from there you know so the previous year obviously helped you then because you knew what was ahead of you and, and how to tackle that yeah i knew the first 70k because it was uh, the same course oh, last okay. year so yes. which is ideal yeah actually more than 70 it was the first ooh, more like 120 pardon me it was the first was the same as last year um and then you had a decision point you reached a decision point at 120k which uh they had a mandatory medical check there, which was quite comprehensive. They took my uh, 
heart rate. They took my. Uh, <laughs> I'm laughing burn. like, because there's no way yeah. I would pass a medical test at that stage. <laughs> and they sat me down and again, quizzed me, you know, like, what medication have oh, yeah. you been taking? None. You know, they're just kind of like, they're checking your mental facility, basically, and that uh, you haven't done anything stupid. Uh, so your compass mentis and that you're. you're uh, yeah, you haven't uh, stretched your body too much. And uh, so, yeah, and plus it's a decision point. You can you can opt to, rather than go on the full 170 at that point, you can opt to instead take the 135 course. And from that point, pretty much all downhill to the finish. So it's a big temptation if you're feeling in any way bad. But that is evil. That is absolutely, <laughs> that, that sounds like Lazarus Lake again. Yeah, it's very much that spirit as far as I'm concerned. And yeah, I think at least one third of the field took that option, you know, and none yeah. of it for, for a good reason. You know, anyone who took it probably took it for a good reason. And that included Michelle Pilotti, who's the, the founder of the UTMB. He took the, the 135 option. The, in um, the, Bar the Barclay Classic, um, which I'm going to this year, oh, sorry, next year, um, they have a very similar thing to that. You can finish the marathon, yeah, whatever distance that is. Or you can go ultra. on, you can chance your arm on the ultra if you make the cutoff time, that is. Um, but then yeah. the risk is that you get a DNF. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You know, but I usually go all in anyway, you know, but uh, yeah, those, those are evil temptations, those things, you know, but uh, you'd be more used to them being if you have a, the 24 hour background where basically every lap is a temptation to stop. So. You, you, you would need to know that going into the race that that decision was going to happen and prepare yourself ready for that yeah. so that when you yeah, come to it, the decision's already made. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, as you rightly say, having having run to that point last year, I knew very well what uh, what roughly how I'd feel when I got there. And, you know, I was absolutely, I was, I was fine, which was good. Plus, as I was coming in, Hamden, the Omani runner who was leading, was uh, exiting, so I had him on visual sight as I was running down. So that's that's more motivation, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I was kind of wondering would he take the short option, but he didn't. <laughs> but that would have made life very easy if he did. <laughs> so when when were you aware then that you were in pole position? When did that happen? Uh, after that, after that decision point, because Hamden had been 40, 45 minutes ahead of me at the first big aid station, the life base, about one third of the way through. And he spent uh, 40, about, he spent about 45 minutes in the aid station. I spent about seven. So I pretty much closed entirely the gap at the first life base. Then he opened it up again and uh, to the second life base where he was, came in about uh, 25 minutes ahead of me, I think. And same thing, I, he left about three minutes in front of me. Uh, and then he started opening the gap again. So it was about a 15 minute gap, at least uh, maybe 10, 15 at that uh, decision point. And then I never, then I lost sight from, and after that, the ground got really technical, took a huge amount of concentration just to keep going. And it was the middle of the day, so the sun heat was starting to come on a bit. And uh, it just felt much wilder. And then we had to climb the highest mountain in Arabia, which was a big, big, big long haul up when quite technical. <laughs> and then just after climbing, there was actually a uh, steel fire ferrata steps. And just after I topped out over that, um, I came across Hamden, and so he seemed to be having cramping issues. So that's when I went in my head that okay, if he's cramping now, I'm probably 
I, you know, I can actually get into a position to win this race <laughs> from here. Uh, so we ran together for the next uh, hour or two, I would say, up over the top of the mountain. And then as we started descending, maybe uh, 15, 20 minutes into the descent, uh, I was slowly easing away from him, just running my steady pace. Then he came flying past me, running full belt, you know, practically sprinting past me. <laughs> and, uh, and I let him go because, you know, it's too early for that stuff, even beyond halfway, it's too early. Uh, but then 100 meters in front of me, I saw him pull up and grab the side of his leg. So he cramped again. And, you know, to me, that's the key thing because um, my thinking there is even if we're together, right to the last aid station, I'm going to sprint from the last aid station and push that, you know. <laughs> so uh, I had my plan if we were together the whole way, and hopefully that was the plan to beat him, and, you know. Uh, as it happens, I just carried on at my steady pace, and about half an hour later, I was easing away from him, and I wasn't looking back. Um, then I just started opening a gap, and... That was it. I found myself in front and running steadily, and my my pacing was good. I was able to keep up the running all the way to the finish. It wasn't the fastest, but it was running. So that by the finish, that actually opened the gap up two or three hours. But you know, I didn't realize at the time. I thought the gap was more like twenty minutes, but <laughs> that kept me motivated and kept the pace up. Yeah, uh, it was yeah. ep epic, absolutely epic, watching it from home. Um, it was epic running it as well, I can tell you. <laughs> there was quite a few Irish people over there as well, Tony Burke and there a few was. others there. Yeah, yeah, Tony Burke and uh, yeah, quite a few others. And my wife as well was running the 50, 50 race, which wow. is great because last year she was supporting, so it was good to see her racing this year. Yeah, That's pretty cool. I remember there was a photograph went up of this guy called Owen. <clears throat> Owen was in the lead of the race, and I looked at it and was like, "Who is Owen?" <laughs> I take a look at the photos, and it was Ian. And I was like, yeah. "No, no way!" Because I mean, I knew what your project was. I knew you were hoping to get um, a podium in your age group, but this guy yeah. was out of front, winning the race. And yeah. from that yeah. point on, I had a. Or sleepless night, should I say, sitting watching the, the, this race as it sort of developed. And you were thinking, like, these guys, he's actually getting further and further away. It's great. Um, yeah, it would be great if we had trackers. I'd love to see the tracking myself to see where and how I was pulling it out because, you know, there was all sorts of different terrain going on, you know, a thousand meters of technical descent. And then there was a flat bit. And I'm wondering where I was opening up the gaps in retrospect. It's really interesting. Yeah, unfortunately, we didn't have trackers. We just had the aid stations to punch mm -hmm. in. But yeah. <laughs> but it was pretty it was awesome fun. then seeing you coming over the finish line. And yeah, it was, was like, <laughs> it was just speechless, to be honest. You know, just seeing you coming through and you'd actually won the race, like after the full year that you had had and the goals that you'd set yourself. Like to actually win that race was just like, wow. And it was like, a, I'm not going to say a shockwave. Well, yeah, I'm going to say a shockwave went right across Ireland. Um, this guy's <laughs> actually won the race, you know, and everybody yeah, was just... It was fairly unbelievable from my own perspective as well, because I hadn't expected to win the race going in. Although my wife was was pretty sure I'd ha I had the ability to do it, but I didn't, you know, I knew I could compete, but I really wasn't expecting to win. So to find myself running towards the finish line in first place, it was... 
Awesome. Absolutely awesome. <laughs> and even better to be greeted on the finish line by, by Owen, you know, uh, as yet again, the UTMB race announcer. So we had an Irish race announcer with an Irish winner. Adam Hammond, the race director, is also Irish. So it was it was pretty awesome from an Irish <laughs> came together, you know. So, yeah, it was it was uh, I, it's definitely one of the, my my best results of my career without shadow of doubt, you know, to, it's it's a UTMB franchise, so it's a big race, you know, yeah. and it got massive coverage out in Oman, you know, it was, it was really great. Uh, we were walking around the next day, getting a tour with some of our, some people we'd met out there and they were showing us the local, the fort in the local town. As you know, I've introduced to them and so he, he won the, the race and, the, you know, selfies all over the place. It was great. Everybody <laughs> knew about it. It was really, really great. <laughs> it was lovely. It must be uh, a... It must have been a great race from a culture perspective as well. Yes, absolutely. You know, yeah, it's totally completely different. But Oman is great. It's actually, I love it as a country to, to visit. Uh, very friendly people. Very nice. Very, very nice. Very hospitable. Uh, we had a great time. Really good time. Uh, it was it was a great holiday. Even the fact the race was still a great holiday. Uh, but yeah, winning the race on top just made it epic. Absolutely awesome. And yeah, I'm still on a high because... Yeah, winning a UTMB franchise race is just something else, you know. It was only two weeks ago, um, wasn't it? It wasn't that long ago. Yeah, yeah, it's not that long ago, yeah. So I'll give myself the rest of the year off. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go past the fact how technical it is, though. It's um, like what Ian Key says, it's most probably the most technical race that I've ever done. It means it's a technical race. It's not for... Absolutely. You need to be confident in your own ability going into this race. Yeah, yeah. Like from from the point of view of uh, someone in Ireland doing something like uh, the Morn Seven Sevens and running those nice rocky trails around there is good preparation because it's you know those kind of think of running off the Nard down the the rocky the rocky sections and that's pretty much a good idea of what you're dealing with for a long, long, long time. Steep, rocky, technical stuff. Lots and lots of it up and down. Uh, so yeah, it's it's technical. It takes a lot of concentration, that's for sure. And as I say, I'd love that. That's <laughs> once you once you enjoy that kind of running, it's brilliant. You know, because it's proper technical. It's not artificial technical. It's still the easiest ground you'll find in the area. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you need to stay on the trails. So it's it's really good. Yeah, so congratulations anyway for accomplishing the project or hitting your goal of reaching podium for in all three UTMBs. Yeah, you've had a yeah. <laughs> you've had a lot of running this year, so you've had a lot of time to think. Have you thought about what the next project is? I have I have ideas, but it, <laughs> I'm kind of less plans than usual at this time of the year for next year. I, I'm left it more open but there's a few things which i'll definitely be doing i'm going to the spine again although i don't think i'll be as competitive this year Whoa. my intention can be more relaxed and of course one of the reasons is john kelly is running it john kelly being the last person to finish the barclay yeah. so i'm thinking john kelly will absolutely nail that one so uh be interesting and eugenie's going back as well so i'm guessing eugenie would I, and you're braces. not you're not going to try and pick his brains are you by any chance uh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, 
you know, I, I will try and get to the Irish 24-hour running championships. I'll hopefully get to the European 24-hour running championships if I'm running well enough. Uh, the UTMB, I'll get back to that. Um, good thing about finishing on man is he ought to qualify in for the UTMB. You don't have to go through the draw. Is that is that um, for anybody that finishes the 170? Any of the UTMB big franchise races. So if you do the 135, a bigger course, you've got an automatic UTMB okay. entry. And it's actually a good system because the races are actually harder than the UTMB. So it makes perfect sense. If you can finish those races, you can finish the UTMB. You know, it's such a better than general points qualification in terms of an indicator of who's likely to finish. So it's a good system. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, I've all those and I have a, a few other ideas, which I'm not 100% committed to. But might, from an earlier discussion, we might share a race, a race soon enough. We'll see. <laughs> I, I don't want to go. I don't want to finish without talking about the Barclay. Um, this is your fault because yeah. you wrote, you wrote it in the race report saying it's unfinished business as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So will I be back? Well, first of all, I have to get back into it, which is easier said than done, mm-hmm. as we all know. One man decides who gets in, and uh, he's definitely got a mind of his own. And, uh, <laughs> sure, <laughs> and it works in mysterious ways. But yeah, I, I do intend at some point to to get back to it. But, uh, fingers yeah, crossed. Be great fingers to see crossed. You. Great to see you back, and I wish you all the luck for next year. Um, Aim, we've done a great job there. We'll wrap it up at that. Lovely, and lovely. Sounded excellent, like. Thank you, right, sir. Right. Appreciated that. That was good for well, having no prep. I'm going to get running again because I've actually, my work Christmas party is starting in two minutes. <laughs> All right, so, boss. Enjoy, enjoy. I'll talk to you soon. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Another great podcast from Ian. I tried to pick up where we left off on his first episode that we recorded, um, which was podcast number 30, I think. So if you missed that, go back and check it out. It was great seeing him in Chamonix this year. I'm totally amazed by his ability, which is maybe underestimated by a lot of people. I hope the sign wasn't too off-putting, but it's a great UTMB special to get you buzzing on registration and open day. Good luck to everyone, no matter what race you've applied for. TDS, CCC, UTMB seem to be the main three, but all the other ones that are around that. Hope to see you all in Chamonix. Until next week, stay safe and keep on moving. <laughs>